Guys, I'm Richard Fitzgerald. This is Dubai Works, where we interview the business leaders making a difference in this great city. That business with scalability was very interesting to me. I like building something that has legacy. So this episode is going out while I'm in Ireland. We recorded it a couple of weeks ago on Zoom. It's a fascinating conversation with a truly inspirational entrepreneur who goes into the detail of how he set up his business, um, the struggles, uh, the different career that he had in the US and how he went back to Asia, grew up in Thailand, lives in Singapore now and has one of the biggest sports streaming businesses in the world. Um, fascinating sports story, uh, fascinating business story. Uh, and how he's really looking at the Middle East and, and setting up events and doing things here in the future. It was really a pleasure speaking to Charity and um, uh, please do enjoy the conversation. Good morning and welcome back to another episode of Dubai Works Business Podcast. Today's a really exciting conversation. I'm joined with a legend of his industry and his field and with a huge big backstory and a really successful business. So he, he is the founder of One Championship, Chatri Sityatong, I think that's right. And they are one of the largest sports media platforms in the world really, broadcasting over 150 countries and ranking amongst the top 10 sports media properties in both viewership and engagement. So we're going to hear about the history, how Chaudhry was a fighter, how he got involved in this sport and, you know, how it, how it grew across Asia and across the world, uh, sports broadcasting in general and the streaming industry and looking ahead of what one championship has for the future. Good morning, Chaudhry. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Is it morning? Or you're in Bali at the moment, right? right? <laughs> it's good afternoon. Good afternoon. Yeah. You're, you're in Bali. You're on holiday. Yes, I'm in Bali here, uh, looking out at the ocean. Um, so, yes. Beautiful. Yeah, do you spend some time there? Uh, yeah, I come to Bali, you know, uh, at least probably once a year or something. Uh, I mean, obviously not during COVID times, but uh, now that uh, we're allowed to travel again, uh, yeah, so I'm here in Bali for a few um, days. And where do you know, where are you based? Are you, where are you normally based? Singapore. Okay, and is that the headquarters of one championship? Yes, yes. So can you tell us a little bit of background <laughs> into your career? And you have an incredible backstory, so why don't we start there? Sure. Um, well, I'll begin with that I'm a lifelong martial artist, and I started martial arts uh, in Thailand, uh, Muay Thai specifically, when I was around 13 years old. And I've uh, you know continued to train and compete and all that throughout this time, and uh, and teach. And, um, it's just, uh, my greatest passion in life. Uh, <clears throat> little did I know though, that martial arts. So when I first started martial arts, I, I did it because I wanted to be cool and beat up the bullies in front of the girls, that kind of thing. Right. I thought that martial arts was just cool. But now that I've been doing martial arts for 38 years, I realize more and more every day that it's not necessarily about fighting. Actually, that's the biggest misconception about martial arts. Uh, martial arts is not about violence. 
martial arts is actually um, a way of life, uh, the warrior way of life, meaning it teaches you to have a warrior spirit, to overcome adversity. It gives you courage, humility, honor, respect, and so many incredible values through thousands and thousands of hours of training. Um, and that's the real meaning of martial arts. And I believe it's the greatest platform in the world to unleash human potential. Anyone looking to search, looking for something that'll help unlock their potential as a human being, martial arts is one of the most incredible ways to do so. Um, of course, you get confident, you, you gain confidence because you know you can defend yourself in most self-defense situations. Um, but again, it goes far deeper than that. And why I say that martial arts really transformed my life and saved me was, you know, I grew up in a well-to-do home when I was a kid. And um, as I got um, uh, older, um, my father uh, unfortunately went bankrupt. And so the family lost the home in the house, uh, and sorry, the home in the car. And um, my um, father eventually abandoned the family. And so we went from being well-to-do to, you know, really, really struggling. Um, my younger brother, my mother, and I. And, uh, you know, when I watched my mother cry um, because she was hopeless for the future of her kids and she sacrificed her meals for us or whatnot, you know, it really, it really broke my heart in a million pieces. And I wanted to give up, quite frankly. You know, it was such a daunting thing to be in Thailand broke and uh the entire um country was mired in a deep recession and uh you know my because of my martial arts training kind of the fighter instincts kicked in and about you know fighting and overcoming adversity in this case poverty and so that's kind of like what martial arts gave me is you know gave this fighting spirit to embrace adversity, to use it, um, you know, to strengthen one's spirit and to conquer. And the other thing too was my mother, ever since I was a young age, literally like five years old, and I, I thought every mother says this, you know, uh, she used to say, Chasha, you're going to grow up to help people. You're going to grow up to help the world. And my mom always used to say this to me, and I always thought it was motherly gibberish that you know, every mother says this. Every mother thinks their kids is, is the best. Um, <clears throat> but her words really echoed to me um, at that moment. I remember it very well. And, you know, obviously the first thing was to help my family. But after that, um, long story cut short, um, my mother, you know, her belief in me, she said, I need to emigrate. And although I had been to America already for my education, I need to emigrate and, and, and try to get into Harvard Business School and rescue the family by getting a good, stable corporate job, a, a great degree first, an MBA, and then uh, <coughs> um, uh, a corporate job. And um, yeah, long story cut short, I somehow got into Harvard. And I remember my first day there, I I had um, imposter syndrome. I had one suitcase with all my life's belongings, and it was just literally a couple of jeans and you know a few t-shirts and stuff. And I had no way of paying for school. Um, I had to figure out immediately how to get odd jobs 
Uh, I taught Muay Thai. I taught, uh, I was a tutor at Kaplan. Um, I delivered food. I took out loans to be able to survive and, and, and just make it. But on top of that, I was very, very um, gripped with fears, doubts, and insecurities about my own ability to perform academically. You know, uh, Harvard Business School is known as the best business school in the world with the sharpest minds. And I didn't think I could survive, to be frank. Um, so I was really very, very scared. And the second year, my mom came to live with me in the dorm, you know, unbeknownst to the administration. And it, it's it's just something, again, you know, it was a tiny single room in Morris Hall. I slept on the floor. My mom slept on the bed. Um, these are the kind of memories I have as we struggled, um, of my time at Harvard, but at the same time, um, I'm truly grateful for all the hardship and poverty and struggles because I truly believe that, you know, through our suffering, we all discover our greatness. Um, this is for all human beings on the planet. And so if you're going through the fire, my advice is keep going. Because um, that's where you'll discover that instead of just a clay pot, you went through the furnace and, and you become porcelain. So that's kind of, in a nutshell, the the, the first half of my life. Um, and I'll, I'll pause there for a second. No, it's an incredible story. And thank you for sharing. You know, your your profile is online and there's a lot of detail about your success and uh, but to hear it like that is, you know, when you were a kid, did you feel that, uh, you know, after what happened to your father, did you feel that you, you were the eldest son in the family and you had to provide for the family? Did you have extra responsibility on your shoulders? And did that kind of wake you up a little bit or did it put you under more pressure? Or was that a sort of defining moment? Yeah, no, definitely. You know, Asian culture is very different from Western culture in that as the oldest son, I've I always had the ultimate responsibility of caring for my parents. That's just the way Asian culture is. I know, let's say for an America, you know, the expectation is for the child to leave home at 18 years old and then have no more responsibility. Um, and the parents are responsible for the retirement. All that. Asia works very, very differently. Um, and so I always knew in the back of my mind that I would have to care for my parents, but I didn't um, know that it would be under such extreme circumstances, uh, sudden change and, 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 and again, extreme circumstances. But I'm truly grateful that, um, yeah, I'm just truly grateful that um, I was able to experience all the hardship and struggles um, because it forged in me, you know, a fire in my belly to do something with my life. You know, when you see your mother crying and your heart breaks in a million pieces because of it, when you see your younger brother struggling, it uh, so it's 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 odd to say, but I'm truly full of gratitude and appreciation for my days of struggle and my days in poverty. What gave you the inspiration that you know a young boy in a, a recession kind of poor economy in Thailand in the '80s that you could sort of you know live the American dream or you could do something, whether it's in business or in sports? What were there other so, I told, so, so I did. I didn't know. I mean, I, as I said, I was filled with um, tremendous fears, doubts, and insecurities. I remember <clears throat> when I left Thailand for the final time, and I told my mom, you know, I will, I will bring her to America. And uh, I didn't know. 
I had like a thousand dollars in my pocket and a suitcase. And um, I had a lot of fears, doubts, and securities. You know, was I smart enough? Was I going to end up getting kicked out due to poor academic performance at Harvard? I definitely didn't feel like I belonged on the first week. I looked, everybody was very successful and smart and wealthy or well to do or whatever it is. I mean, had great careers. I just looked around and I just didn't feel that I belonged. Um, so, but I had no choice, right? I mean, my mom was living with me in, in the second year. So if I had failed out, not only would I have school loans and whatnot, but my, what would I do? I'd be in the worst situation with debt. And now I got to continue to take care of my mom and my younger brother. It's like, so it was very, yeah, it was very tough times. Was mixed martial arts a career? Uh, <laughs> we actually had Joyce Gracie in our studios recently, and he was telling me about his family and the, and the history of mixed martial arts and Muay Thai and, 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 and this industry. And of course, it's kind of grown in the last decade, and you're very much part of that. But was it something that, you know, you got involved in fighting and competing? Was it something that people did professionally or, you know, could people uh, earn a, a living out of it at the time? Well, I would definitely say that, you know, today in the world of martial arts, it's a global duopoly. Uh, the UFC has a lion's share of the Western Hemisphere, and one has a lion's share of the Eastern Hemisphere. Um, and I would say that the DNA of the two companies are completely 180 degrees diametrically opposed and different. I would characterize UFC as a commercial enterprise um, that heavily focuses on blood sport and hatred and drama and whatever it may be to sell pay-per-view versus one is, you know, born is the home of martial arts. You know, Asia has been the home of martial arts for 5,000 years. We want to celebrate Asia's greatest cultural treasure. We want to unleash real life superheroes from all over the world who do martial arts. You know, martial arts is not an Asian phenomenon. Yes. The birthplace of martial arts is Asia, but martial arts and martial artists literally come from all walks of life in all countries, all nationalities. I mean, how many people all over the world were Bruce Lee fans? You know, um, how many kids, American kids or Brazilian kids or Canadian kids or English kids or Australian kids or Thai kids um, are in martial arts schools today because our parents put them in there to get some discipline or get some courage or get some respect or, or work ethic? Um, and obviously to, they didn't want their kids to get bullied as well. Right. So these are all different, um, um, attributes that I want to share on this journey. And yes, because of one's exponential growth and, and you're right, um, according to Nielsen, which is the world's largest authority on, uh, viewership data for the media industry globally, has uh, pegged us at top five largest sports media property in the world of any kind of sport in terms of viewership and engagement numbers. Um, so whether it's TV or social, digital viewership, um, top five in the world. And I think that exponential growth, I started one a little over 10 years ago. And I think the exponential growth has been because, you know, our mission has been to unleash real life superheroes, who ignite the world with hope, strength, dreams, inspiration. We try to be a positive influence on the world um, as opposed to what you do see with our um, our competitors might be less 
about a mission and more about you know blood sport or chaos or, or hatred or anger yeah it's fascinating you know I'm super interested in the streaming aspect and the entertainment and, and how you've done it. And, you know, would like to delve into that a little bit more, but so you did that when you were say 40, but from to take us from Harvard to, to your sort of career in fighting up until the moment that you launched. <clears throat> sure. So when I graduated from Harvard, uh, my mother had this grand plan of me working at a fortune 500 company, stable, secure. And, I, I don't know what it was, but in my last year at Harvard, I, I got bit by the startup bug and a friend of mine convinced me to join and do a startup together. And so even before graduation, I found myself in Silicon Valley and we had our first, where we did our first startup and it was an internet software company. Um, and that was my first taste of being an entrepreneur. I think in my 25 year career, I've been an entrepreneur I think 20 years out of the 25 around there. Yeah. 20 years out of the 26 or 27. Yeah. Around there. And um, yeah, so I just wasn't destined for the corporate life, but interesting in that when we launched that startup in Silicon Valley, I was poor. And so my mother and I slept in sleeping bags on the floor, on the office floor. And we ate microwave food, you know, frozen foods, a dollar 50. Wow. And I remember very well. And that was our meal. And, you know, only a mother's love could, could wow. do that. You know, she was very against me doing it, by the way. She was, she was very upset. But, you know, when, you, when, you, when something pulls at you, it pulls at you. Um, long story cut short, we raised $40 million in venture capital, eventually sold the company. Um, I then, growing up as a kid, I had three kind of passions or interests, if you will. Obviously, the first being martial arts. Um, and the second being entrepreneurship, you know, doing my own thing. And the third was, uh, the stock market. I was very, always, I always read about Warren Buffett or, or Peter Lynch just organically. And, uh, so I thought, okay, I want to go to wall street and I want to eventually cut my teeth there and start my own hedge fund and learn how to invest and buy, buy and sell companies around the world. Um, <laughs> long story cut short, I built a $500 million hedge fund um, after after stint at, at, at a multi-billion dollar fund where I learned the craft. And it's crazy because I think I was 35 or 36 around there. And I remember having a great year performance-wise and again, making millions of dollars. And I went down to the sushi restaurant nearby my office and by myself. And I was sitting at the sushi counter and <clears throat> I was very initially very happy because we had record year, but then it, it quickly sank down. I had this cold sweat feeling and I thought, well, what is next year going to be like? What is next five years? going? What's the rest of your life going to look like? And then it's weird. My mom's words echoed in me and saying, you're going to help people. You're going to help the world. And I thought to myself, this is not the life that I imagined. Like, yes, being wealthy and having houses and cars, but I was very empty. And that's when I realized I climbed to the top of the wrong mountain, meaning that I did like stocks. I did like investing. I did like hedge funds. But at the same time, 
I always had an emptiness that I kind of always ignored. You know, Sunday night blues, Monday morning struggling, and Friday can't wait to get out of work. That something was missing. And, um, and it hit me at that sushi bar that I was living society's definition of success. I was wearing a suit and tie to work every day. I was working on Wall Street. You know, I had the right degree, the education, all that stuff. But I, I don't know. I just, I wasn't, I knew that I wasn't living my purpose or passion in life. And every day I would still be training martial arts. Uh, I was training at the Henzo Gracie Academy, uh, doing jujitsu at the time. So you kept and, up, uh, you kept up martial arts, <laughs> never stopped it. What all that stuff? No, no, I, I, yeah, yeah, no, I, I, I never stopped. And I, I always trained and competed and yeah, always, always, uh, it was always the, the foundation of my life, even as it is today. Like I train every day without fail, right? It's just part of the foundation of, of who I am. Um, but then I thought, man, it, you know, I train two hours a day. Imagine if I could live all 24 hours doing martial arts. And that's when it started. I started thinking about it more deeply about like, man, you know, I'm just in the wrong industry. I'm in the wrong job. I can't envision myself being here for the next 5, 10, 20, 30, 50 years. And there's nothing wrong with being a hedge fund manager. It was great. Again, it's a great job. Um, there are people who that's their passion, their purpose. But, you know, for me, I think societal pressure or, or the definition of success by society standards got the better of me. And I had that moment. So I had many sleepless nights for many weeks. And I told my mom, mom, I'm retiring from Wall Street. And uh, I want to live a life of martial arts. And my mom was like, that's, Chacha, you're arrogant. You know, you forgot the days of us struggling in poverty. You have a fantastic career. You just need to keep growing your business. And, you know, you're making more money than 99% of the world. And you're ungrateful. And she gave this whole motherly lecture. Um, but some, something inside of me said, I, I have to help people and I have to help the world. And so long story cut short, I moved back to Asia and I saw a huge opportunity in one. Every region of the world has several multi-billion dollar sports properties. Okay, U.S. has NBA, NFL, Major League Baseball, etc. Europe has F1, Champions League, EPL, etc. And all these properties are worth tens of billions if not $100 billion, like NFL is worth $100 billion. And Asia, even despite having 4.2 billion people here, had no sports property to call its own. How crazy is that? It's like every region of the world has sporting properties that are part of the daily, uh, you know, part of daily life and history and culture, and yet Asia had nothing. And so I thought, okay, I've been doing martial arts my whole life. Asia's greatest cultural treasure is martial arts, 5,000-year history on the continent. There are 4.2 billion people. Why, why can't I just create the first global property that not only unites Asians, but unites the world around the, the best fighters, the best world champion martial artists, and telling their stories? Remember, the mission of the company is not pay-per-views or whatever it is. The mission is to unleash real-life superheroes who unite the world with hope, strength, dreams, and inspiration. And uh, yeah, that was that was how it how it all. Um, all came together. So, yeah. so amazing story. So you saw <coughs> what was the landscape like, uh, you know, for those who aren't familiar with it, you know, obviously there was events that people compete in. How, how did you suddenly land in with one championship 
did you start with events small? Did you go big? Did, which markets did you tackle? It's a big region. Yeah. Uh, we went big on the very first event. Uh, it was a 10,000 or 12,000 um, uh, capacity stadium in the Singapore Indoor Stadium. And um, the thought process was, you know, if I'm going to do this, I'm, I want to be Asia's largest sports property of any kind, right? Of any kind of sport. Um, and I didn't know that in, in 10 years, we would be, in less than 10 years, we would be top five in the world, according to Nielsen, in terms of viewership and engagement of, of all sports. I think that the first, last year's list was the number one was Tokyo Olympics, obviously. Um, and then it was like the EPL or Champions League or whatever. And then we were, and then I think NBA and maybe one other one. And then we were, we were there number five. Um, so, um, it, it's just, uh, I think right place, right time, creating the right product, meaning that I think people have a fascination with watching the very best in the world, you know, do their craft. But at the same time, we have a thing, a mantra internally at one, it's called our, our, our formula for success is values, heroes, stories. So celebrating the values of martial arts. So it's humility, honor, respect, integrity, courage, etc. Heroes, you know, uh, unleashing heroes who inspire continents or countries who rally around them, just much like the Olympics, right? Then stories, we want to tell their stories of overcoming adversity or tragedy or poverty. Um, hold on a second. Let me just, uh, sorry, I'm going to uh, turn off the aircon here. I'm in the, I'm in the hotel room, so apologize. Um, so, I just wanted to be able to, um, you know, do values, heroes, and stories as a way to unite the world. And it's, so it's not about, I always tell our team that our genre might be martial arts, but our platform is humanity. Because if, if we are able to celebrate the values of martial arts, if we're able to unleash real-life superheroes, you know, who inspire countries and, and regions and, and the world. And we're able to tell their stories of overcoming tragedy and poverty, adversity, whatnot, <clears throat> naively, and, and we still believe so, um, that we can somehow elevate humanity to dream more, do more, be more in life. Um, and I know it sounds like a corny mission, but it's, a, it's, it's comes from the heart for both myself and my team. And I think that's probably why our numbers have grown exponentially. I mean, just give you perspective how crazy the growth has been. Several years ago, you know, our total organic video views would have been less than a million. Last year, we crossed 13.8 billion organic video views. Not million, billion, right? So you go from, you know, several hundred thousand to 13.8 billion. I can't even register the math on that exponential growth. Um, and I think it's, we've, our content just goes viral, whether it's social, digital, or whether it's TV with massive fandom and passionate engagement. Um, because I think people want to be inspired. They want to be, you know, all of us, okay. Every single human being, being on this planet, we've all faced adversity at some point in our lives or something tragic happening to our friends or family or mother or daughter or whatever it is, um, or losing a job or, or being in financial straits, whatever it might be. And people watch one for two reasons. One is 
because there is phenomenal world championship action, the best athletes in the world, the best martial arts in the world. So they're able to <clears throat> create magical memories with their friends and families watching these events, but also take away the deeper stories that we're telling. And I think that's why, it, you know, it resonates with people from all borders, you know, sorry, from all countries without any borders. Amazing. So hmm. technically you, you, you've explained really well how the stories and, you know, people can understand how these events run and the interest in the fighters and the, and the competitors and uh, how people can follow the tournaments and things like that. But as a business, it feels like there's a lot to it. There's event management, there's logistics, there's league management, yeah. there's brands, there's yeah. broadcast partners, streaming yeah. technology, yes. all that sort of yes. stuff. When you were starting it out, did you know that you would have to do everything yourself or did you work with partners? How did you get to where you are today? Trial and error. <laughs> yeah. Oh, really? And, and the fact that I knew nothing about the media broadcast industry and the fact that I knew nothing about the sports business ended up being assets because if you talk to veterans at the time, and that's what happened to me, you know, the first three years of one, I was rejected thousands of times, failed at every day, whether it's broadcasters, brands, governments, employees, athletes, they all reject me. They want to be part of this. They're dumb. And I think the, probably the most interesting thing that was said to me at the time by broadcasters was Asia doesn't need a sports property. We already have EPL and NBA on TV. Why would we need an Asian property? Um, and uh, it's true. Why would you need one? But at the same time, I felt that, again, every region of the world had several multi-billion-dollar sports properties and Asia didn't have any. So, um, and again, as long as I stuck to this whole value, sure stories formula, but I didn't know what I didn't know. So obviously the first day was event, throw a big event in the stadium, but you're absolutely right. Now you got to get worried about the production value of that in stadium and production value on it on TV. But wait a second, get on TV. You got to convince broadcasters to carry it. Why would broadcaster carry a brand new sports property? And why would they give you primetime slots? You know, we're, we're, we're in Asia here, primetime every Friday night, primetime. And we're going to be in America uh, with Amazon Prime uh, in primetime, 10 p.m. Fridays. And why would they do that, right? And so there's a lot of pieces. You got to get the best athletes in the world. You got to get the best stadium product. You got to create the best broadcast product. At the same time, you got to be able to tell stories via, um, you know, great videos or, 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 uh, you know, PR or whatnot to be able to build these heroes. Um, and the list goes on and on. You have, to be, you have to understand technology. You have to understand. There's just so many things, <clears throat> pieces to building a sports property. And I had no clue. And um, that's why I said, you know, it's being at the right place at the right time sometimes. You know, those kind of things, I think, did play a big, big part in, in why one's so successful today. Because, you, you know, the timing is interesting from a, a sports property and a streaming and a, how media has changed. And you seem to have grasped that well, whereas many struggle with it, that you own the IP, but you also go direct to consumer, but you also now have recognize that it's not all about direct-to-consumer, that you can yes. have a partnership with Amazon Prime and that you can go around the yes. world. So like a lot of the, a lot of the decisions you're making, uh, you know, might seem fortuitous in, the, in getting the timing right, but, you know, I've, I've seen your tweets and, and you seem to be 
grasping the broadcast area and industry quite well now. You understand it quite well. Um, is that your vision for one championship to be that sort of modern media uh, and entertainment company? Yes, definitely. I mean, today now, I think we, my team and I fully understand, you know, what the key success factor, the key success factors are for a media property such as ours. Um, you know, we have two sports properties today. We have one is martial arts and one is esports. We also have a third leg, which is uh, general entertainment, which uh, we launched The Apprentice with MGM on Netflix uh, uh, earlier this year. And it's coming to Amazon Prime Video in the US uh, later this year, coming soon, actually. Um, and you know, The Apprentice, the, it's, it's the most successful reality show, um, full stop. I think it's been running for almost 20 years. And you're, um, you're, so you're, you're the lead on that as well. Yes, yes, I'm the host. I'm the lead. Yes, exactly. And so we have candidates, 16 candidates from around the world, who are vying for a job with me. Um, but you should go watch it. It's it's on Netflix. And so if you're in Dubai, it's it's on Netflix. You can watch it. Actually, I have a lot of uh, uh, folks from Dubai messaging me in my DMs and saying what a great show it was. And a lot of people from the Middle East, actually. Yeah, amazing. So before we kind of talk about this region and plans for the future, in terms of uh, business structure and investments and did you did you bootstrap this? Did you raise venture capital? Are you looking to list? Like, what's the sort of um, the the business? So side yeah, so so the first several years it was bootstrapped completely. Um, you know, I was fortunate that myself and my my business partner we had um, done well in our prior careers on Wall Street um, to fund this. But you know, it was not infinite. We were going to eventually not fund this, right? And but fortunately, we got lucky again uh, with institutional investors such as Temasek, which is a sovereign wealth fund of Singapore government. Um, uh, we also got Sequoia Capital, uh, the you know prestigious. I think it's the most successful venture capital firm out of Silicon Valley. Uh, Sequoia Capital is our largest shareholder. We got the Qatar Investment Authority uh, as partners as well, and um, Guggenheim and Vulcan, and just literally the the best bluest chip institutional investors you could think of um, who are invested in one. And we've raised approximately $500 million. And the company today is valued at $1.4 billion. Um, and it's just the beginning. It's truly just the beginning. We're entering America in earnest for the first time come August 26th, Friday night prime time in the US with Amazon Prime. Uh, we announced a multi-year deal, a five-year deal with Amazon Prime uh, just a few months ago, which is a, a seminal moment. There's never been an Asia sports property broadcast on a regular basis in prime time in the U.S. We'll be entering the U.S. with events um, next year. And so, yeah, it's just uh, one thing after another. It's been just truly an incredible uh, surreal ride. You know, um, you know, did I ever think I would be in the Middle East? You know, we'll be coming to Middle East with events as well. And um, so there's a lot of very interesting things that are happening, but the, again, our formula of values, heroes and stories truly resonates all over the world. Mm. So tell us a little bit about the Middle East. I know you were in Qatar recently and you come to Dubai, but, um, what, what's the plan for here? Do you, do you see appetite amongst audience, uh, for definitely. events? And, yeah. <laughs> yes, definitely. definitely. The two content stacks that resonate most with millennials when it comes to sports, okay. Live sports all over the world. 
it's martial arts and esports. There's yeah. no other or gaming, right? There's no other content stacks that truly resonate with the millennial and Gen Z, the next generation. 80% of our audience is millennial and Gen Z, irrespective of a country. It's, it's amazing. Um, and it's a very simple, there's this very simple answer as to why. The smart mobile device and social media has made it interconnected, the whole globe interconnected. At the same time, it's also made it that only exciting short form content resonate on the, on the phone. Here's an interesting fact. On your mobile device, you can't see the golf ball, the tennis ball, the soccer ball, the basketball. You're not going to watch a 200-lap race by F1. It's just too small. But you can see a flying kick that ends in a beautiful KO, or you can play video games on your phone. So we got lucky that our content stacks, the two content stacks, we, 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 our two sports properties are literally the sweet spot from Len and Gen Z. They wake up in the morning. They check TikTok or Facebook or Instagram. When they go to bed at night, they check TikTok, Facebook, Instagram, and our videos are very, very popular on those platforms. Uh, you know, as you could see, as I mentioned about the organic video views. So um, I think the sky's the limit. I really tell my team that I really feel, yes, we're a little over 10 years old, but it truly is day one. It's truly only day one for us. We've just started. So you see one championship, the brand's being present here with people, participants from the region, esports competitors, mixed martial arts competitors from the region competing at your events. So building followers and stories from this region as well. Yes. yes. And then obviously having live events here, but having a, a Middle East fan base um, that watch our events from all over the world, wherever we're hosting them, right? Because we're entering America. We're going to be throwing European events and Asia events. And so it's we're truly global. Mm. Okay, amazing. Uh, and so, what's your view of the Middle East? Uh, you know, outside of one championship, what's you know, kind of an extension of, of Asia? Do you see that there's? Um, I think what how you described the heroes and the <coughs> story as well um, would resonate with a lot of young people here, being against the odds, not having uh, opportunities, and trying to do better for their family and and in whatever vocation they choose. Uh, so is that your view of the Middle East? You see it as a, an emerging market? Uh, opportunity? Yes, no, I, think, uh, I think just from our, our, our data, right, our, we can see that there is a growing, an exponentially growing fan base from the Middle East. Um, organically, the next generation loves martial arts. They love the content. Um, it isn't practiced as heavily and widespread, but I do see growing numbers because I've, in the last uh, few years, I've, you know, visited Qatar, UAE, Saudi, Arabia, etc. And I can see the community, the martial arts community growing uh, fervently in these ways, practitioners, right? So whether it's practitioners of Muay Thai or Jiu-Jitsu or mixed martial arts or any form of other martial arts. And again, I think people are starting to understand with one's product and our brand that martial arts is a way of life. It's about, you know, inheriting and forging a warrior spirit so you can conquer adversity in life, not just you know, in, in the martial arts academy, but in life, um, it's about inheriting these incredible values that martial arts teaches you. So I think, um, yeah, I just think there's a lot of uh, potential in the Middle East. And, uh, you know, yeah, everywhere I go, uh, you know, a lot of Middle Easterners already, you know, approach me for a selfie or whatever it is in the airport mm -hmm. or, you know, on the streets. And so I do think um, there's great opportunity in the Middle East.
Right. And just touching a little bit about esports as well. How do you see the, the entertainment business of esports playing out? You know, we, we know about the consumption of streaming and watching gamers and influencers and things like that. But there seems to be, a, it seems to be raw and ripe in terms of um, events and participants and stadia and things like that. Is, is that, is that where you see the industry going with, you know, mass participant watching? Yeah, yeah, yes, definitely. I, 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 when you look at Asia here, our most viewed event did 287 million viewers in Asia for esports. For live events? Or- yes, for a live event, a single live event in stadium that we broadcast all over the region. Wow. Um, you, yeah, it's, it's crazy. The numbers are crazy. Because you would not think to yourself, why would 287 million people watch other people play video games? But it doesn't really matter. People want to watch the best in the world, do what they do, and they want to do it, I believe, in a way that we celebrate values, heroes, and stories. Mm-hmm. And so um, I think there's tremendous potential in the Middle East. You know, um, Again, it's, 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 it's a real industry. Gaming and esports is a real industry. It's here to stay. Millennials and Gen Z have voted with their feet. They love martial arts content. They love esports content. Amazing. And so, just talking a little bit technically about, you know, uh, one championships website app, you can go direct to consumer, but then you have partnerships with Prime. And, you know, we saw uh, WWE go direct and then back onto a partner. And there's a lot of talk in the streaming industry at the moment about uh, what's happening, really. Uh, you know, the, whether uh, the big platforms like Netflix are going to get into sports and, um, you know, whether they have to add advertising and all this sort of stuff. Do, do you feel that the, the value of one championship is that direct <clears throat> customer relationship? Or do, you, or do you like to play in all parts where people consume content? Yeah. So our strategy um, at one is to be ubiquitous and platform neutral. So we want our content, which is deliberate, and that's why we're top five in the world, on every TV, if that's what you want, if, if that's how you consume. So the older generation or different parts of the country, you know, developing nations here in Asia are still on TV. Uh, at the same time, you know, we partner with Amazon Prime, who's on the cutting edge of, you know, the consumer media space, especially with live sports now. And uh, so the idea, again, is to be ubiquitous on TV, social, digital platforms, owned and operated as well as third party and really proliferate the content because it's resonating and growing exponentially anyways on its own. <clears throat> so we want to be available anywhere uh, with ease of access um, as a primary, you know, point for the consumer. Mm. You know, we don't want the consumer to have to choose a platform. We want, if you happen to be on Amazon Prime, great. If you happen to be on this platform or that platform, you have to have this TV, great. If you want to go direct, great. Um, yeah, so that's our strategy. Amazing. And that's what, yeah. Sorry, yeah, amazing. Uh, it's really interesting. We could talk at, at length. I, I love this industry in sports broadcasting. And, and as you said, uh, you know, uh, IPs and, and media properties are, are sort of born out of opportunities, aren't, aren't they? And then suddenly they become hugely valuable. Um, so, what, so going back to the region a little bit just before we finish, uh, you know, is there any plans? Is there anything you can share about when there will be an event and which country are, are you taking it step by step over here? Um, it's too early to announce. I can just tell you that we're um, in very 
deep discussions with multiple countries in the region. Um, there is very strong interest in one in the region. And, uh, you know, let's see uh, where everything shakes out. But there are some very serious discussions going on in, in the key major countries in the Middle East. Because UFC obviously have been here for a few years and they've done smart things during the pandemic and they've had events in Abu Dhabi and things like that. Uh, is that a similar approach that you would look at or you, do, you, do you do everything 180 to how they do it? Yeah, so again, <clears throat> I, I, as I said, the industry is a global duopoly. A UFC has its ethos and DNA. Um, again, it's just 180 degrees diametric opposed to what we do um, in, in values and ethos and DNA. Um, but in terms of strategy of the business, meaning that distribution and um, e live events and great content, I think those are some of the common ground. But again, we, we, we differ greatly in, in how we approach things. But to say that we want to throw live events on ground in the Middle East, that we want to celebrate Middle Eastern heroes, that we want to celebrate Middle Eastern culture, that we want to tell stories from the Middle East. These are just part of the DNA of one. Amazing. Um, and to finish, I couldn't be Irish and not ask you about Conor McGregor, but in context of, do you, do you represent your athletes and performers as talent and do you have exclusive contracts? And would you ever bring someone over from UFC to one? Uh, so yes, all of our contracts are exclusive and we're always actively um, scouting the entire globe um, for martial arts talent, whether it's mixed martial arts, Muay Thai, Jiu-Jitsu, etc. Um, and there have been a few or several free agents from the UFC that migrate over to one. Okay. And uh, I believe, so it's Eddie Alvarez, Demetrius Johnson, Sage Northcutt, like the name, those big names. I think we've had maybe one migrate over, one big name migrate over uh, to the UFC after he'd actually retired for a couple of years due to hip injury, uh, Ben Askren. Um, but again, as I said, the world is big enough to, to have two yeah. major sports properties in combat sports. And uh, especially when, when they're two completely different um, companies. Yeah, philosophies, ideologies. Brilliant, Shatri, thanks so much for taking the time out of your family vacation. Pleasure talking to you this morning and we'll follow one championship with in interest in the Middle East. Thank you so much, take care. Have a nice day. Take care, thank you. Wow, what a conversation, what a story. I'm personally passionate about the media space and media industry and love how he's put together a business around it and telling stories around sport and doing good. A really kind of finding yourself sort of story as well, uh, explaining all the different struggles that he went through. Uh, so yeah, one of my favorite interviews that I've had on this show and looking forward to seeing how one championship grows in the region and beyond. Uh, as I said, uh, I'm traveling this week. We'll be back in person next week. But as usual, Ali and Shahir have produced and edited and brought together the, the guests and the episode for this podcast. So thanks a lot for their support on that. If you're listening uh, on, a, on a podcast platform, please do like, subscribe and share with a friend. If you, would, if you know someone who's a founder or CEO of a Dubai-based business and would like to hear their story, uh, 
let us know who you'd like to hear about and we'll reach out and we'll uh, arrange for them. Or if you know someone we don't know, please do suggest as well. Uh, as always, you can download the Smashy app on iOS and Android or pretty much every TV, smart TV platform now as well, uh, Sony, uh, Samsung, and you can get us on, uh, on Wayak and a few other partnerships as well. Uh, you can watch any of the previous episodes. 